Stem cell science is changing medicine and our understanding of human development. Learn more with the Stem Cell Channel. Visit uctv.tv slash stem cell. The topic of this panel is about the limits of governance. I really liked how Wikipedia defines government because it talks about the process of choosing the right course among the actors involved in a collective problem that leads to the creation, reinforcement, and reproduction of acceptable conduct and social order, which I think actually captures a lot of what we're talking about today. And, and you know, how do we actually operationalize things like governance? Um, uh, we do it through policy, and I'm using that in sort of air quotes because policy can mean a very broad range of things. And in an ideal world, you have policy that establishes governance, which in turn informs policy, um, uh, which informs governance, and so on and so forth. We don't really live in an ideal world, but um, uh, that is what we certainly aspire to. There's a history of policy in the United States, and I'm going to speak mostly from the perspective of U.S. policy, because that's the world in which I live, although this is true uh, in some cases with the international policy as well. We tend to do policy in this country through knee-jerk reaction. We are sort of um, policying the crisis du jour, and that's not actually really a great way to uh, do policy on a national level, because usually what happens is you have something that is assembled very, very quickly. Um, so probably isn't very thoughtful or deliberative or very good. Or we just say this is too hard and we essentially create a policy vacuum and allow a thousand flowers to bloom and, and a very permissive sort of system. Uh, so what's the consequence of that uh, knee-jerk reaction in the context of thinking about uh, uh, setting limits? Those of you who uh, may spend time reading to children might recognize uh, this. this. is one of the books I loved reading to my kids. Um, it's called I Want My Hat Back by John Clausen. And spoiler alert for those who haven't read it, it's about a bear. He's looking for his hat, and he wanders around the forest asking animals if they've seen his hat. They haven't. Um, and then ultimately, he gets to this rabbit who seems a bit defensive and says, no, why are you asking me this? I haven't seen any hat. Don't ask me any questions. Just stay away from me. And um, and the bear says, oh, okay, thank you, which is his response to everybody. Sometimes uh, when uh, talking to the scientific community about these really difficult uh, sorts of questions of limits, um, I find myself thinking about this book and seeing this rabbit as a metaphor for the scientific community's response to um, some of these questions of, of limits. Don't ask me any questions. Why are you asking me these questions? Stop that. And I think it's important to to think about this in the context of this kind of knee-jerk policy response and the culture of science um, relative to limits um, in, and, you know, why it is that we see that, that sort of uh, uh, response and, 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 you know, why it actually ultimately creates this kind of vicious cycle of, of more knee-jerk responsiveness. I think, you know, when you think about the culture of science, it's very immersive. So, so immersive, in fact, that I think it's something that scientists who live within it, um, and I, I myself am a scientist, although I've had some distance from actually uh, being in the in the lab and part of the, the scientific community in that sense, um, that, that you take it for granted. You don't even see it anymore. And I think it is such an immersive culture, it seems very strange to those who are outside it, inside it trying to look within and thinking about the motivations of, of science. But um, relative to limits, some of the, the, I think, important keystones are, you know, thinking about how we talk about science. If you look at a lot of, you know, big scientific symposium, they're often talking about bending limits, breaking limits, right? Like the frontiers, like, you know, uh, expanding the horizons. I mean, it's, it's a lot of language about um, 
discovery that is set very much in the context of, of pushing past limits. And so I think that's important in thinking about how scientists think about science, right? Because it's, it's uh, relevant to these questions of things like inevitability. Um, uh, the um, why people get into science, you know, it's generally to do good. It's for really admirable reasons because they want to make the world a better place. They're driven by by sort of general curiosity. As a result, um, I think scientists rightly see themselves as good actors. And so this idea that somehow they might be doing something that society is having sort of this visceral negative response to is is very hard to, to understand. It's as if someone comes up to you and says, um, you know, says something to you that makes you think you are a bad person and you find yourself going, I like, this is very, this is very shaking to me, right? Like you're, you've wounded me to my core. I'm not a bad person. I think of myself as a good person. And so um, I, I think that is also hard to um, absorb. You know, there is a strong, what I almost think of as a cult of the smart within science, right? Science puts a lot of value on, on prestige, being the best scientist. And while we're very willing to question each other on the details of the science, I mean, I think that's also part of the culture of the science asking a lot of questions, you know, challenging the, the sort of dogma. When it comes to um, uh, behavior, um, I think we have a lot of examples in which we are um, unwilling to question prestigious scientists about their um, behavior because, you know, we really um, put a high value on um, uh, on that, that scientific prestige. We're willing to trade off a lot of um, perhaps inappropriate behavior in, in, um, uh, for what we see as, as good science. When we think about how scientists think about how the public thinks of their science, this almost flavor of, well, if only the public was smarter, they would agree with my perspective on this. And, and so I think a great um, sort of counterexample of that is if you think about the use of animals in research, I've talked with many, many scientists um, uh, who say, well, you know, animals are um, uh, hugely necessary in research. Animal models have, have produced an incredible amount of um, uh, important information that has led through it, medical advances was undoubtedly true. And there's sort of this sense of like, if only the public understood how important animal research was, um, they of course would... Um, uh, 100% without any reservation support the use of animals in research. That is in fact not true. There are a lot of people in the public who absolutely understand and support and believe that evidence, but for reasons of their own ethical or moral frameworks still don't think we should be using um, uh, animals in research. So it is um, uh, not just a matter of public understanding of the evidence. It's it's a um, uh, uh, that is important, but I think that is something that is countercultural to a lot of the way of, of science. We also have to understand that science history um, is uh, ripe with sort of these tales of scientists who challenged sort of the dogma of the time and, um, uh, you know, met great resistance, but ultimately triumphed and made great discoveries in science, right? We're thinking Galileo here, right? Um, uh, some of the, um, uh, certainly the, the Asilomar, you know, early uh, recombinant DNA story uh, comes to mind. And so um, I think there's 
also this kind of historic narrative that exists about why it's important for scientists to, you know, push back that sort of, you know, Luddite kind of uh, uh, societal resistance to to move science forward, um, uh, which is not wrong, but also I think simpli- oversimplifies some of the discussions we're having today. I think it's also important, uh, I, you know, I, I spend a lot of time as the person who sets the rules for um, a very large funding agency hearing from scientists about um, uh, what their day-to-day life is and, and how I make their life harder um, and, and you know, sort of this, the, the, the argument of burden, which, which has a lot of truth in it. I mean, I think, you know, if you've ever seen that commercial in which kids are saying, like, I want to be middle management and sort of mocking that idea, I think if you talk to any scientist when they set down the pathway for science and they thought about themselves making exciting discoveries and being in the lab and the love of science, they don't envision themselves as sort of running a small business in which they're filling out a lot of paperwork and making sure that they're uh, being compliant and they're supervising a whole lot of different kinds of people and they're having to do a lot of committee meetings. I mean, the real life of a researcher is probably not what a lot of scientists thought they were signing up for, but that is the reality of the system that we have built today. And so when you start talking about things like limits and, you know, which are often implemented in the form of policies and rules and regulations and paperwork, um, uh, they tend to have this like, oh my God, this is one more thing that is going to take away from what I got into this business to do in the first place, which is, again, genuine good and and, um, uh, really making advancements. And I think we also have to recognize that in the real world, while we have these great discussions um, uh, about, you know, very kind of thoughtful and deliberative policy processes in which smart people come together and reach, you know, sort of nuanced consensus decisions. Um, the way this happens a lot of time is in a risk-averse system in which, you know, agencies like mine or, or regulatory agencies set these very high-level rules. And what happens on the ground is um, uh, there is a lot of sort of Overcompliance, overcompensation, which translates in the real world to what feels like a discommensurate amount of oversight and work and guidance um, uh, in order to achieve the ultimate um, uh, outcome. And, you know, all of that, I think, is adding to kind of this reflexive reaction that we sometimes um, uh, talk about in these uh, conversations about the role of the scientific community in talking about these sorts of um, limits. Uh, so I just want to set the stage here to say that, again, policy can mean a whole variety of things, everything from, you know, laws and statutes, which are pretty hardline policy, to the sort of softer policies, whether those are codes or institutional policies, practice. And I think there is an interesting thread of conversation that we've heard all day about um, the push-pull effect of policy. Are policies and governance systems codifying norms that exist already in the scientific community, or are they driving norms? And I tend to think of policy as tools of behavior change. Um, so really, it is uh, putting forth the guide rails that actually move people towards the outcome that, that you want to see. And that can either be limiting um, in terms of, of limiting a set of behaviors that you want to see, or it could actually open up, as Ben described earlier, more degrees of freedom because you know where the lines are and within those 
those lines. Um, there's there's a lot of flexibility. Um, but doing that is really understanding the carrots and sticks model that exists in the system. What is motivating people um, uh, to behave as they do? Um, how do you push and pull them in, in various ways? Um, and all of this becomes really important, practically speaking, when you think about how do you actually want to operationalize the sorts of principles that we've been talking about all day. Um, several times we've talked a little bit about the notion of public versus private actors within this system. And, you know, I'm obviously talking about public policy here, policy related to um, federal governance or federal funding uh, sorts of systems. But I think this is a important thread for a couple of reasons. One is the important um, issue which Matt Porteous brought up earlier, which is the idea that, you know, if you are really concerned about um, uh, something, you do have to think about what is the system in place that that stops any actor, regardless whether they're public or private, from uh, uh, going in the system. But I think it's also important to think about um, more nuanced approaches where there may actually be gaps between public and private sector rules in the the policy itself, but in practice, really, they're essentially behaving the same. So let me give you a real-world example of that. Um, uh, in the real world, by and large, uh, the um, uh, welfare of rats, mice, and birds in medical research is, is not really regulated in the in the private system, which is controlled by the Animal Welfare Act. It is in the, the public system, but, but by and large, the private uh, uh, sector uh, follows the uh, public rules for a large variety of reasons. And there are all sorts of examples of this where public policy drives private um, sector behavior in a, in a voluntary way. Um, and that works by and large very well. So even though there is a technical gap in the policy, in practice, it doesn't really exist in the, in the real world. Um, I also think there are cases in which we might want nuances um, because we are a nuanced society. So there are numerous cases in which we have expectations for public funding, public employees that we do not have for um, private funding, private uh, organizations, private employees, because there are some things that we maybe uh, want permissively as a society, but we don't want our taxpayer dollars spent on. Um, and uh, that is, you know, possibly okay, um, uh, but something to think about, practically speaking, when you're thinking about policy. Generally speaking, I think as a golden rule, good policy is informed policy. It is really difficult to reconcile this, both in kind of that knee-jerk reaction space and in something like emerging technology. And uh, I'd like to dive a little bit more uh, deeply into that. Um, so in my experience, it's really easy to make policies in abstract. Um, uh, I, have, I have sat through hundreds of um, uh, abstract policy discussions where everyone leaves feeling like they've reached consensus. But when you're actually setting pen to paper or you know, fingers to keyboard, it can be quite difficult to create real world policies that achieve the aims that you're ultimately trying to do in creating this set of limits relative to any given uh, area of science. Why is that? First of all, definitions are really, really important. Probably the most important um, aspect of any policy is that upfront section that gives you the scope or definition. It is really hard to regulate. And again, I'm using that 
that word very loosely, what you can't define. And in the case of um, uh, emerging technologies, emerging biotechnologies, it can often be very difficult to define what you're talking about, either because we haven't reached consensus yet or because it is an evolving um, area in which the goalposts are constantly moving. Um, I loved uh, the, um, uh, this is not a mouse embryo uh, uh, picture this morning, because that's a great example, you know, uh, uh, trying to define, you know, what we mean by um, uh, embryo policy requires defining what an embryo is. The science is such now that that is getting harder and harder to do, potentially, right? And so as a policymaker, um, I, I can't set forth policy if I can't define what the policy applies to. And so um, uh, this can be remarkably tricky. Um, Practical implementation. Is it feasible? Is it enforceable? This should go without saying, but truthfully, I've heard many policies um, uh, propose that involve what sounds like a very idealistic way of getting a bunch of people together and having these very, you know, um, uh, nuanced discussions um, and, uh, you know, doing a whole lot of uh, uh, review and in-depth um, uh, analysis. That's great if you are a very small organization, for example, that is funding, you know, a hundred projects a year. If you're something like the NIH where you get 50 to 80,000 applications a year, the idea that you're going to have, you know, a, um, a, a long nuanced process on any one given issue may not just, may just not be feasible. Um, and so it's really got to be practically implementable, um, in, in a real world way. I think we also need to, to talk about, and we're not great about this in the United States, frankly, what is the risk we're willing to accept? There's no such thing as a perfect policy, a perfect prohibition, a perfect law. They reduce risk at the end of the day of something bad happening, but, uh, you know, there may be nothing you can do to, um, for unanticipated consequences or to stop a bad actor from doing a nefarious thing. Um, uh, and so you have to sort of start from that place. But I think you also need, we need to think about risk in the broadest possible sense. So a lot of times we think about risk in, you know, sort of the easily conceivable sense of safety or, or security, but there are ethical, um, risks as well. And, you know, this gets to some of the, um, discussions that have cropped up throughout the day about, um, uh, what I'll call the almost slippery slope, you know, progress, uh, versus inevitability, uh, question is, are there some ethical risks, some ethical consequences that are so dire we want to put prohibitions in place that stop us from going down that path in the first place? Um, there are potentially a variety of, of questions here, but step one is coming to agreement on what is the risk as a, as a community, as a society, in, in my case as an agency that we are, are willing to um, accept. Uh, we do need to think about the inadvertent consequences. Um, heard a very eloquent uh, example in the uh, sickle cell uh, world of, you know, you can put a policy into place. Um, it sounds great when you write it down. It sounds great when you sort of put it out for public comment. Um, and then you find out it is not being implemented in the world um, the way you thought it would. Sometimes those inadvertent consequences are good. Sometimes they're bad. Um, but it is something you have to be prepared to address. 
Um, uh, I probably say this too much, but one person's flexibility is another person's ambiguity. And so, um, you know, when you are creating policies or governance processes um, that are designed to address a very large ecosystem, it's very hard to come up with a one-size-fits-all policy. And so you try to create flexibility that allows tailored solutions um, to ultimately achieve the same objective. Sometimes this really stresses the system, in fact, or provides loopholes. Um, sometimes people just want to be told what to do. I always say a great analogy. I tried to give my bridesmaids when I got married a lot of flexibility in choosing something. They came back to me and said, just tell me what to wear because this is too stressful and, and we don't like it. And, and that is often the case in federal policy. You try to provide flexibility and what you get back from uh, those who the policy applies to is, can you please just tell me what to do because I don't, you know, I don't like the risk involved in, in making this um, decision. Uh, it's really important to think about the tools and levers at your disposal. Is it better to have um, these hardline policies or these softer uh, uh, sorts of motivations and incentives that we talked, you know, whether that's tied to, to federal funding and really understanding the motivations and priorities of actors in the system. I think it, there might be some truth, although I say this a little bit um, facetiously, that you might get uh, uh, the policy right when nobody is happy, when everybody is sort of equally unhappy in these debates where there are uh, really dichotomous views. But I do want to talk about uh, uh, the intersection with public engagement, because a lot of what we've been talking about today is how do you really make sure that the voices of the, the public, that we're not just sort of um, creating these echo chamber effects of, of particular communities with a vested interest in this space. Um, and I, I will say that from sort of federal policy making point of view, there are a lot of challenges in public engagement. It's really easy to talk about. It's really hard to do. A lot of the tools that we have available to us are not really great at scale. They tend to reach, uh, um, uh, you know, the cognoscenti. There are actual rules. Um, and I, I think this gets really bureaucratic and wonky. Um, but there's a whole set of laws, things like the Paperwork Reduction Act and the Administrative Procedures Act and the Federal Advisory Committee Act that actually really limit the ability of policymakers um, to just have conversations with members of the public um, about things that they are working on or, or thinking about. Um, and those rules were put into place for good reason. I don't want to um, uh, knock them, but it does really limit engagement, which you know gives me another uh, uh, note to say uh, thank you for the organizers of this conversation because it's really helpful when outside organizations organize these sorts of discussions that are difficult for the federal government to do, and then we can listen in. Um, I, I, I think there is also a general unwillingness to allow contrarian views, but also a tendency for a vocal minority to have an outweighed response in the mechanisms that we use for public discourse in the context of creating policy. I think, you know, if you think about um, how, you uh, you know, how policymakers get views from the public. Maybe you've attended workshops, you've responded to um, RFIs, you've attended federal advisory committees, all of these tools the federal government has at their disposal. There tends to be a very scripted program, and the people who show up and say something tend to have a very distinct point of view. It is really hard to achieve balance in these imprecise um, mechanisms. I think it's also important to keep in mind that people are real people. They have very nuanced views on a lot of these complicated um, issues. 
issues and that is again really important to incorporate into blunt policy um, issues and it's really hard to um, capture the attention of folks in sort of our reactive policy space. There are a lot of uh, challenges uh, specifically in the world of emerging biotechnologies. Balancing risk versus benefit is really hard when both are still at the nascent stage and all very hypothetical. Um, and so creating a policy designs to essentially balance the risk versus the benefits um, is, is quite challenging when the risk landscape is always changing. Sometimes risk is diminished the more we learn. Sometimes it is potentially heightened. You know, the people who are creating policies present company accepted, of course, um, are, are often not steeped in the nuance of the um, technical details and the understanding of the science. And there is always a period in the emerging of a new biotechnology when there are like three people in the world who are super experts, and they may or may not be good translators of technical information. And so trying to create policy at that stage when we've not yet had a development of translators of information um, is incredibly challenging. I also have begun to think that there's this sort of hyperbolic phase of Schrodinger's biotechnology in which people will either tell you this is the best thing ever. If we, you know, don't do this right now, um, people are going to die. The world will stop mitting on its axis. This is, you know, the, our greatest chance at, at medical advancement. And then there's a other, you know, sort of the other side of the bell curve is, this is, you know, going to um, imperil uh, humanity. It's going to be really awful. Um, and, and truthfully, they might both be right, because in the early phase of uh, an emerging technology, we actually don't know which way it's going to go. It's all sort of hypothetical. Um, uh, and it makes these conversations um, uh, very, tip, uh, very difficult. You know, for some of the types of technologies we're talking about today, I've mentioned genome editing here, but truthfully, it's true of a lot of cell-based technologies as well, you've got a essentially a multi-tool technology, right? Like it's just a tool. It could be used for a lot of applications and the applications each have their own set of risk and benefits landscape. And so creating a policy that um, uh, is application specific is, is um, a quite hard when the sort of instinct is to try to control the technology itself. And this gets to, you know, what amount of risk are we willing to take in technology development? And, and in the case of some of these things, you know, there is a ubiquitousness um, and a rapid development as we sit around having this debate. Science is continuing. It's um, uh, uh, rapidly becoming uh, ubiquitous. And so how do we create um, right-sized policy that takes that into account? The hyperbole isn't always wrong. Sometimes there are incredibly um, uh, exciting breakthroughs. Sometimes there are really big risks. And so it's also important to um, uh, really keep the, the moving embryo, uh, the moving evidence base um, up front. For embryos in particular, I will say it's important to recognize that in the United States, um, embryo policy is one of those places where we've essentially left a huge policy vacuum. Um, we are arguably uh, still having the debates um, uh, that that began at the inception of IVF because we we were paralyzed by that. You know, we've got essentially an assisted reproductive technology industry that is unregulated because we couldn't make a decision as a country, and we are trying to build on that vacuum of a policy um, in in a lot of ways. Um, and so it's important to recognize that some of the reason we are still continuing to have this discussion is because we've been kicking that can down the road for a very, very long time now. 
It is really important to not let perfect be the enemy of the good. Um, in a lot of these emerging technology spaces, there probably isn't a, a perfect set of limits, a perfect answer. That doesn't mean we should do nothing um, or you know not continue to try. Um, uh, and uh, uh, again, just reiterating the the uh, point that a gap in governance or in policy doesn't mean there's a real life gap. There could be um, uh, uh, you know some real world practice that is making up for that. Um, and then finally. Uh, I, it, it, I, I was not surprised to hear the next rack uh, uh, brought up earlier because inevitably you can make a drinking game out of this at these sorts of meetings. Um, uh, the rack and or a silamar um, uh, is, is raised. And if you want the history of that, I refer you to uh, one Dr. Porteous who uh, uh, is a student of this. Um, but one of the things I, I um, did when I was at NIH is I sunsetted uh, the recombinant DNA advisory committee and created, as was mentioned, this new committee focused on um, biotechnology I think there is really a lot of um, interesting lessons embedded in the experience of the RAC, both in terms of how the scientific community has sort of mythologized SLMR and, and what the RAC and sort of, you know, whether it was self-governance or real governance, um, uh, but also in how quickly things become codified and inflexible, um, which in, in the face of a emerging area of science, um, and, and, you know, sort of the cottage industry that builds up around that and how you have to be kind of careful, uh, what you wish for because, um, you can create inflexibilities where you were really trying to, um, create degrees of, of freedom. Um, and so, uh, with that, I'll say thank you and just conclude, um, that things did not work work out very well for the rabbits um, if you don't have a chance to, to read this book. Um, and uh, thanks for the opportunity. I look forward to the panel discussion.